Hey, morning, everybody. Don't go into science. That's, uh, that's what my pastor said to me as I headed off to university. Seriously, he told me that, that science was too set against Christianity, and he was afraid I would flounder if I went into the sciences. Of course, some of you know me, and you realize that made me just want to study science more. So I immediately majored in biology and enrolled in biology classes, which I absolutely loved. Now, in the end, it turned out the best fit for me is not as a scientist. Here's how I first began to figure that out. Every time I went to the library to work on biology labs, I would find myself inexplicably like a magnet would draw me and I would find myself over in the history section and sitting on the floor reading for hours and hours all the wonderful history books and not getting my biology lab done until late at night. But my personal strengths, that's not what motivated our pastor. He actually thought, <clears throat> this wonderful, precious pastor, he actually thought that Christianity and science were so incompatible, he feared that I would stop following Jesus if I studied science. Now, his concern came from a good place, and it's understandable, but quite frankly, it's wrong. <clears throat> Survey says, wrong. Far from being an enemy of Christianity, science is one of the Bible's best friends. Every moment I have ever spent thinking scientifically has deepened my wonder and develops my relationship with God the Creator. We're studying apologetics right now. That's the, the biblical calling to make a defense for the hope that is in you as a Christian. And to do so, we have got to deal with this false idea that Christianity is at odds with science. Let me, let me show you what I've learned. First thing, and this is really important, Christians invented science. Science is a distinctly Christian invention. What we call science only developed in the Christian West because only Christianity had the foundation necessary for scientific study. By the way, that's the headline in your notes. Um, if you're with us online, your host uh, should have posted for you where you can get the link for the notes. You guys in here open up, you'll see that headline, Christians Invented Science. Um, Grossetest uh, in England, uh, Bourdon in Paris, Brunfels in Germany, these and many other medieval Christians built what we now call science. And they did it on this passage right here, Psalm 24. Open your Bible to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is the bedrock of science. Along with other passages, Psalm 24 told our ancestors that the world was orderly and it was discernible. This was what motivated them. Go to Psalm 24. Let's read um, just verses 1 and 2. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to whom, everybody? The Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. God is the creator. He established the earth. It all belongs to him. And things that belong to people bear their imprint. All the stuff in your house has your fingerprints all over it, right? That's just the way, that's the way it works. So since scriptures declare God's orderliness, these early natural philosophers, by the way, remember that's what that's what scientists called themselves for centuries. They, they didn't call themselves scientists. They called themselves natural philosophers. The early natural philosophers reasoned that the fingerprints of order should be all over creation. If God really created everything, there should be fingerprints of order everywhere. And that is exactly what they discovered. From, from cells to stars, from atoms to oceans, they discovered the fingerprints of God in the orderliness of creation. And, and by the way, <clears throat> speaking of oceans, look at verse 2 again. Look at verse 2. For he laid his foundation on the what, everybody? Seas and established it on the... Now that is not what one expects to read. 
When you're reading through Psalm 24, you get to that and you expect the foundations of the earth is going to be about plate tectonics, right? It, it, I, I expect to read, <clears throat> God laid its foundation on the landmass or on the magma. But this is so cool. This is so cool. Water is actually the right answer because it is, it is the foundation of all life on earth. Every single living organism, anything that is living, uses some kind of membrane to separate the, the organism from its environment. Waste has to be transported outside the organism. Nutrition has to be brought inside the organism. And water is the key to every bit of that transfer. Water is the essence of life because with its polarity, it is the universal solvent. Water is the most efficient way to to sustain life. There's nothing else that does the transport work necessary for life. Thus, verse 2 is actually far ahead of modern science. Because in verse 2 of Psalm 24, God notes that life is founded on water. That's why uh, the director of NASA's Goddard uh, Institute, Dr. Robert Jastrow, tells this story. In his book, God and the Astronomers, he says, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. Close quote. Turn a few pages back to Psalm 19. Uh, It's just a couple pages of my Bible. Go back to the west to Psalm 19. Psalm 24 taught that the earth has God's fingerprints, right? It is orderly. It's revealed to us in discernible fashion. Psalm 19 calls on people to discover that, to learn from creation the same way they learn from the Bible. Uh, Let's read verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There's no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now, that psalm goes on to describe Scripture as well as the heavens and creation. And each part, God's general revelation in creation and His specific revelation in Scripture, each is to be discovered. They speak. Now, Unlike the Bible, the expanse of space doesn't speak words. Look at verse 3. Psalm 19 says creation doesn't speak words. But verse 4, it does communicate. That means there are clear measurables that allow human beings to understand. And those things just need to be discovered. They just need to be measured. God's creation communicates knowledge. That implies logic, purpose uh, that should be reflected in creation. Which is exactly what motivated those first scientists. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, in the book we've quoted from many times in this series, uh, <clears throat> Confronting Christianity, she, she summarizes, I think really nicely, she summarizes from all of the journals of the earliest scientists what they were looking for. Here's her summary. If a rational God made the universe and endowed humans with an intelligence that echoed his own, perhaps his image-bearing creatures should be able to discern his laws. Close quote. That's why biblical people Jews and Christians developed the scientific method. They meditated on God's revelation, both in Scripture and, and in nature. Roger Bacon was the first to systematically lay out what later would be called the scientific method. By the way, not many people know he was inspired by his friend Thomas Wilensis. Thomas was the bishop of a church called St. David's, and he, reading Psalm 19, encouraged Bacon to set about using his great mind to experiment in a methodical way. 
Here's what Bacon thought he could do. He wrote to Pope Clement IV. He said, a more accurate experimental knowledge of nature would be of great value in confirming the Christian faith and of great importance for the welfare of the church and the universities. So Roger Bacon began to experiment. He interpreted the communication that's described in Psalm 19. I want to show you his method. Now, I've updated it. I've used modern language because I don't have time today to go through the different iterations. But, but here's what Roger Bacon set in motion. Um, number one, ask a question. Why? What? How come? Number two, do research on what other people have said. How, how have they answered that question? Number three, form an educated guess. What do we call that today? We call it a what? hypothesis. Number four, experiment with measurable tests. If, if, if the heavens, if the earth, if creation is communicating, as Psalm 19 says, there should be a way to measure. Number five, record and then analyze, meditate on those results. And number six, write a conclusion which may lead to a theory. William of Ockham picked up at Oxford where Roger Bacon left off. He had a famous razor, by the way. No, I'm kidding. Um, Ockham's razor uh, taught that the simplest causes are usually right. Um, William of Ockham was a committed experimenter, and he also strongly believed in God's revelation of Scripture, just as Roger Bacon did. In fact, one of his most famous proofs is this, a brilliant book, uh, his Summa Philosophiae Naturalis. Um, he proves this, human reason can prove neither the immortality of the soul nor the existence, unity, and infinity of God. These truths are known to us by revelation alone. You see that? William of Ockham believed that there was scripture and there was nature and each should be studied. About 200 years after William, Sir Francis Bacon came on the scientific scene, uh, one of the real fathers of science. By the way, quick story, um, there's a Reddit user who goes by the rather unsavory name of Lard Baron. He tells my all-time favorite Francis Bacon story. Okay, you want, you want to hear it? Here's my favorite Francis Bacon story. Um, he says this, when I was young, my father said to me, knowledge is power, Francis Bacon. I understood it as knowledge is power, France is Bacon. <laughs> For more than a decade, I wondered over the meaning of the second part and what was the surreal linkage between the two. If I said the quote to someone, knowledge is power, France is Bacon, they just nodded knowingly. <laughs> or someone might say, knowledge is power, and I'd finish the quote, France is Bacon. And they wouldn't look at me like I'd said anything odd, but would thoughtfully agree. I did ask a teacher, what does knowledge is power Francis Bacon mean? And I got a full 10-minute explanation of the knowledge is power bit, but nothing on how France is Bacon. When I prompted further explanation by saying Francis Bacon in a questioning tone, she just said yes. At, at 12, I didn't have the confidence to press it further. I just accepted it as something I'd never understand. Years later, I was assigned a reading in Bacon, saw the quote, and the penny finally dropped. Now, the, <laughs> I love that. Isn't that great? The real Sir Francis um, Bacon was not France. Although his ancestors did come from there, his ancestors fled from France to England because of religious persecution. He was an educator, a lawyer, a statesman, a, uh, a Protestant Christian, and a scientist. And Sir Francis added a very important concept to what Roger Bacon had done and what William Adachin had done. He added repeatability. Francis Bacon said this, individual reports are insufficient, especially since men are emotionally predisposed to credit the interestingly strange observations worthy to substantiate theories must be repeatable, close quote. 
Further, Sir Francis said that elimination is victory in science. This was a turning point in the history of science. This committed Christian uh, said this. Men, he was looking at Psalm 19, and he said this. Men dissect sensory information from creation, eliminating what isn't true by scientific observation. The point, it's victory to find out what isn't true in science. He goes on. Men dissect meaning from Scripture, enumerating what is true by textual observation. Close quote. I could go on and on and on, but, but Roger and William and Sir Francis display the big idea. Christians developed science. That is your heritage. Christians developed a scientific method. Historian Rodney Stark seems to be correct when he says only in the Christian West could science have arisen. Close quote. Here's another great argument. Uh, it comes from Albert Einstein. You ready? Einstein's heroes were all men of the Bible. This is really true. The great Einstein kept three portraits in his office, only three portraits. He kept a portrait of Neutron, one of Faraday, and one of Maxwell. Sir Isaac Newton's probably known to you. Now, technically, Newton is not a believer in Christ. He seems to have, in his writing, denied the divinity of Jesus. But Newton was very much motivated by the Bible. Uh, he went out of his way to say that he was led to all of his amazing scientific and mathematical discoveries by the adventure and the logic that he found in Scripture. Michael Faraday was Einstein's second portrait. Faraday is one of the greatest scientists of all time. The, the Faraday constant, the Faraday wave, the Faraday cage, the, the Faraday wheel, so many inventions named after this guy, and he was a joyful Christian. He saw faith and science as completely interconnected. Here's, here's just one of the many things he said. I cannot doubt that a glorious discovery in natural knowledge and the wisdom and power of God in the creation is awaiting our age. That's Faraday. Einstein's third hero was Maxwell. Max, James Clerk Maxwell was an elder in his Presbyterian church. He was a godly man who just happened to discover electromagnetic radiation, the unity of magnetism and electricity and light. It's called the second great unity in the history of physics, discovered by this guy. By the way, that, Maxwell's discoveries are what have made you all be able to drive in cars here today. The whole new forms of power were harnessed because of Maxwell's work. This, this is your heritage. Christianity and science are one. And modern scientists continue this work, including a number of members of this congregation. Talented scientists here who continue this work. I want to just pick one campus as an example. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, again, the book is Confronting Christianity. Um, she writes this, on page 117, she says, if I can get there, she said, I live a short walk from MIT, the sacred temple of scientific endeavor in the United States. Stop any student in the infinite corridor that meanders through its buildings and ask if he or she thinks there are any Christian professors at the institute, and the answer will likely be no. And yet the roll call of Christian professors at MIT is impressive. It includes nuclear science professor Ian Hutchison, professor of aeronautics and astronautics Daniel Hastings, and electrical engineering professor Jing Kong, none of whom was raised as a Christian. But there are more. Artificial intelligence expert Rosalind Picard, who invented the field of affective computing, became a Christian when she was a teenager. 
Chemistry professor Troy Van Voorhis came to Christ when he was a grad student at Berkeley. Biology and mechanical engineering professor Linda Griffith became a Christian when she was already an established scientist. Other Christians at MIT include professor of mechanical and ocean engineering Dick Yu. Chemical engineering professor Chris Love. Professor of biological engineering, chemical engineering, and biology Doug Laufenberger. History professor Ann McCants. And even neuroscientist and former MIT president, the first female president of the institute, Susan Hockfield. The list goes on, and it extends far beyond NMIT to leading Christian scientists across the world. And then she closes with this. She says, if science has disproved Christianity, no one's thought to notify them. <laughs> Very good stuff. Modern scientists who are Christians continue this work. All right, looking in at, at, at Psalm 19, the ancient and the modern Christians have seen Psalm 19 perfectly describes the positive interplay between science and scripture. All right, let, let, let's read the whole psalm. Okay, Psalm 19, uh, for the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There, there's no speech, there are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he, God, has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens, circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Notice circles. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. Ever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They're more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them there is abundant reward. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I'll be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion." May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As we headline on the right side of your notes, Psalm 19 describes the positive interplay between science and scripture. Remember Sir Francis Bacon? About, about 500 years ago, he understood what we just read. Uh, there's a chart in your notes. Now, the chart is mine, but the ideas are his, okay? He, he took about 45 pages to say this, so I reduced it to six bullet points. All right, here we go. I think I, think I did him justice. Here, here's, what, here's how he saw life uh, according to Psalm 19. In verses 1 through 6, Psalm 19 describes general revelation, how God speaks through creation. Humans dissect with their senses, that information, sensory, eliminating what isn't true. That's the job of science, eliminate what isn't true by observation. Then he goes to Psalm 19:14. humans meditate on the findings which pleases God. Verses 7 through 13 are the specific revelation where God speaks through Scripture. Humans dissect meaning there, enumerating what is true by textual observation. And then humans, verse 14, humans then speak the results which pleases God. Don't go into science? How could a Christian stay out of science? Natural study is just like our study in Scripture. They are part and parcel of glorifying God with the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts. All God's people said? So then what is it that keeps driving 
science and scripture apart. And that, it's true. We just keep seeing them embattled in our culture. Uh, I only have time to cover three of the big problems. I think these are the biggest three problems that keep throwing this lie in our faces that science and scripture are incompatible. The first one is bad history. Bad history plays a big role here. For example, I want you to raise your hands. How many of you were ever taught about in school, you heard about Faraday or the Bacons or Maxwell? Raise your hand if you ever heard about those people. Let me see all the hands. Okay, now hands down. If you heard about their Christian faith and how that, and it's, it's in all their writings, how that clearly is what drove them, if you heard that as well, raise your hand. Very few. Uh, if you can, the discrepancy was amazing. There were many, many, many hands up and then just a few. Um, I, I was raised in the 20th century where scratching out the Christian background became vogue. Um, and it has only gotten worse in this century with cancel culture. Here's another example. I was taught, tell me if you were taught this too. I was taught that Galileo was persecuted by Christians because of his great science. Anybody else taught that? Christians persecuted Galileo. I believe that is what I was told until I was an adult, and then I went back and read the trial accounts. And when you read the trial accounts, you learn that Galileo was actually a Christian and a very strong believer in the Bible. Galileo did not overturn the Bible. He overturned Aristotle. The, Psalm 19 says it moves in a transit. The, the word says circles from one end to the other. That fits Galileo, what he observed. It does not fit Aristotle. It, it, the, the pope who opposed Galileo was not trying to defend Scripture at all. That pope was concerned. You can see it in everything he said at that trial. He was concerned with humanism and protecting his power in light of the Reformation. The whole kerfluffle was about buttressing human power. It had nothing to do with Scripture or science. And, uh, bad history is a real problem. Second problem is anti-intellectualism. Um, Sean Nelson is an apologist. He says this about anti-intellectualism in Christianity. He says there's a growing sense in Christian culture that we only want practical things in our churches. Or worse, that anything intellectual is to be avoided because that's, that's just head knowledge. This is all part of a growing anti-intellectual trend, close quote. He is right. And the scientists outside of the church are facing an even bigger problem, cancel culture. Um, let me give you an example. Lawrence Krauss is a cosmologist with whom I disagree on many, many things, uh, but he captures the problem of anti-intellectualism really well. He writes this, uh, Lawrence Krauss, in the 1980s when I was a young professor of physics and astronomy at Yale, deconstructionism was in vogue in the English department. We in the science departments would scoff at the lack of objective intellectual standards in the humanities, epitomized by a movement that argued against the existence of objective truth itself, arguing that all such claims to knowledge were tainted by ideological biases due to race, sex, or economic dominance. It could never happen in the hard sciences, I mean, except perhaps under dictatorship, such as the Nazi condemnation of Jewish science or the Stalinist campaign against genetics that was led by Trofim Lyshenko, and which literally Thousands of mainstream geneticists were dismissed in an effort to suppress any opposition to the prevailing political view of the state. By the way, quick side note, this is not just esoteric stuff. We're, this is not just academic things we're talking about. Th this impacts lives. The Lyshenkoism, that, that state-approved science, that directly led to the Soviet famines that killed millions and millions of people. Back to Krauss, he goes on. 
It could never happen in the hard sciences, or so we thought. In recent years, ideological encroachment has increasingly corrupted scientific institutions in America. Academic science leaders now censor dissenting views and remove faculty from leadership positions if the researchers claim, without any empirical support data, to support supposed systemic oppression. One might wonder why more scientists aren't defending the hard sciences from this intrusion. The answer is, he says, that many academics are afraid, and for good reason. I know, I know you are. I, I get to talk to some of you about it. They're hesitant to disagree with scientific leadership groups, and they see what has happened to the scientists who do. Close quote. Anti-intellectualism is dangerous, as is bad history. Finally, third big problem, bad actors really hurt the interplay between faith and science. Sadly, it has become common to purposefully misrepresent both science and scripture. Uh, some journalists are repeat offenders in misrepresentation. Dr. Krauss is not kidding when he says this. As a cosmologist, I can say that if we retracted all the papers in cosmology that we thought were misrepresented by journalists, there would hardly be any papers left. There are some scientists who are notorious for misrepresenting others. Here's an example. Uh, Dr. Michael Behe wrote a very intriguing book called Darwin's Black Box. Um, Darwin's Black Box did an admirable job of showing that biochemistry leads any reasonable person to intelligent design. It's the only reasonable conclusion. There had to be an intelligent designer. Um, after Behe wrote uh, Darwin's Black Box, there was a PBS show called Think Tank. And they called him up and said, hey, would you be willing to do a show where you debate the ideas with Richard Dawkins, who's a leading uh, atheist biologist from Oxford? And, uh, and Behe said, sure, I would. And, uh, and Dawkins said, no, I can't. And, and I quote here why Dawkins, this is the reason he gave he couldn't be on the show with Behe. He said, and this is valid, I am insufficiently versed in biochemistry to address the issues raised by Behe. Fine. But then the producers of the show called Dawkins back he does this kind of stuff all the time. They called him back and they said, hey, would you appear on the show alone? Would you come on alone? He said, sure. So he came on the show and in his interview, he said this, and I quote, Behe describes irreducible complexity well, but it is cowardly and lazy of him to come to a conclusion of intelligent design. If he instead thought for himself, he would realize there must be some Darwinian explanation out there somewhere and he should get off his stuff and go find it. This kind of sneaky misrepresentation sows unnecessary division, and Christians are not blameless. It is a sad truth that some church and school curricula are decidedly deficient in Christianity, and they, and they share an unfairly slanted view of secular science. They, they refuse to follow the truth wherever it leads. They will sometimes in fact, I see this increasingly, they will mischaracterize atheist scientists as always evil. Dr. Fritz Schaefer is um, a professor emeritus at the University of Georgia. He is a Christian, a committed biblical Christian, and by the way, very likely the foremost chemist in the world right now. And he says this to Christians. He says, any deliberate suppression of evidence contrary to one's favored theory is unethical and should draw sharp condemnation from all scientists. This applies to all issues, close quote. He's right. Okay, so what can we do? We've, Christianity and science are, are to get, Psalm 19 is one. 
This, this is our stuff. And yet we've got these forces that are driving things apart. What can we do? There's this wall that's being built between Christianity and science. What in the world can we do about it? First, and I think most importantly, learn. Learn. Verse 14, go back to it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Learn, meditate, wonder. I, I was recently inspired to keep learning when I met a new guy, uh, a fellow named Manasseh Cutler. Amazing, amazing man. Uh, I met Dr. Cutler uh, through David McCullough's book, The Pioneers, which I highly recommend. Uh, let me just read you this little quote about Manasseh Cutler. Manasseh Cutler was born in the 1740s. Like many a Puritan, he loved good food, good wine, a good story, and good cheer. By the way, quick side note. One of the best parts of the pioneers at the beginning of the book is where McCullough goes out of his way to set the record straight. You have been so brainwashed that the Puritans were these unhappy, miserable people, and that is absolutely nothing of the truth. Everything we have, you see them in black, that's because the only pictures they made were of their pastors, and the pastors were black. That was their, you know, everybody else, New England in the 1700s would have looked a lot more like Rio de Janeiro than London. Okay, they wore bright colors. They were always happy. They, anyway, trust me. All right. Um, he had a, Manasseh Cutler had a great love for his large family, his wife and children, and was ever attentive to their needs as long as he lived. He was endowed with boundless intellectual curiosity and took an interest in nearly everything. He had succeeded in becoming three doctors in one, having qualified for doctor of law and doctor of medicine in addition to doctor of divinity. Most remarkable were his continuing scientific pursuits. He was at once an avid astronomer, meteorologist, and naturalist, and was particularly esteemed among his fellow scientists for his work in botany and for having written the first ever treatise on the classification of the flora of New England, a study of some 350 separate species. His knowledge of botany was probably surpassed by few, if any, Americans of his generation. Close quote. Now, one doesn't need to be a polymath like, like Manasseh Cutler. You don't have to learn everything. But you and I can commit ourselves to learning, to always reaching out like, like pioneers. There are three ways I recommend that we should learn, in particular for this apologetic topic. Number one, learn about science. Read science books. Don't groan. I heard that. There are some of them that are even well-written. All right? I've got a suggestion. If you... If you agree, okay, I need to read science, but it's also boring and I don't understand it. I just, just one book to get you started. Longitude by Davis Sobel. Longitude. It is a, the reader who gets into this book gets caught up in time and longitude and politics and history, fencing, fighting, true. Oh, anyway, sorry, that, that's Princess Pride. But anyway, the, the, it really is great stuff. And you will, you will thoroughly enjoy this book, Longitude by David Sobel. Learn about science and learn about scientists. Second thing we should learn is about scientists. If you dig into their lives, you're, you're often going to be pleasantly, very pleasantly surprised. Um, <clears throat> David Sobel, I'm not going to give anything away, but, but the main thing of this book is all about a clock. Every year, this clock that changed the world Every year, there was one person from America who went to Greenwich, England, where this clock is located. His name is Neil Armstrong. He was a, at that time that he would go visit the clock, he was a professor uh, of mechanical engineering at the University of Cincinnati. He's also the first person, as you know, to ever set foot on any surface other than Earth, right? 
Neil Armstrong knew that what he did wouldn't have happened without this. Now, let me tell you about Neil Armstrong. Learn about scientists. I was taught that Neil Armstrong is a deist. And because in, a, in an interview he did in the 1960s, he, that's what he said. It's a valid thing, I was taught. He, he, he was asked if he believed in God. His mom was a Sunday school teacher, a committed person in their church, so was his dad. And Neil said, well, I, I look at science and I cannot help but think, this is what he said, that there is a, a designer. There has to be a creator. But I don't think Jesus is who he claimed to be, the, the son of God. Uh, and that was it. So that's deism. So I always thought that. And that's what I was taught. Until I started reading about Armstrong after he left NASA and started doing things like this. And then I learned all about his deep faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how it happened. This is from Thomas Friedman's book, uh, Thomas Friedman, one of my least favorite authors, but you can read him anyway. Um, Thomas Friedman says this. Neil Armstrong visited Israel. This is after NASA. Um, by the way, Neil Armstrong's uh, partner on that, who were, who were the two other people on the capsule with him? Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. Very good. Poor Michael never gets any love. Um, uh, Buzz Aldrin, after the NASA, went through some really hard life times after the moon trip, and he ended up through those hard times coming face-to-face -face with the truth of Scripture, and he became a believer in Jesus. He encouraged Neil to continue to look at Christianity. So Neil Armstrong took a trip to Israel. Neil Armstrong visited Israel and was taken on a tour of the old city of Jerusalem by Israeli archaeologist uh, Mer bin Dolf. When they got to the Huldah Gate, which is at the top of the stairs leading to the Temple Mount, Armstrong asked bin Dolf whether Jesus had stepped anywhere around there. I'm going to quote from the book. I told him, look, Jesus was a Jew, recalled bin Dolf. These are the steps that lead to the temple. So he must have walked here many times. Armstrong then asked if these were the original steps, and Bendolf confirmed that they were. So Jesus stepped right here, asked Armstrong. That's right, answered Bendolf. I have to tell you, Armstrong said to the Israeli archaeologist, I'm more excited stepping on these stones than I was stepping on the moon. Close quote. Learn. Learn about science, learn about scientists, and learn the Bible. Remember, it's the other half of God's revelation. I know I'm preaching to the choir on this because you're, you're in church studying Psalm 19 with me, but we must never stop learning from the Bible. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Science and Christianity are being falsely pushed as enemies. What can we do about it? Learn and think critically. Never, ever accept my interpretation of Scripture. Check it out. Look for yourself. We need to be like the Jewish Christians in a Greek city called Berea. Uh, in Thessalonica, uh, Paul and Silas were in danger. And so Acts chapter 17, as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away from Thessalonica to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, their normal practice. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They thought critically about Scripture. They used proper interpretive research to see if what they were being told about Jesus was scripturally accurate. We must do the same. Amen? And we must be equally careful what we're told about science. Don't just accept someone's science without thinking through their presuppositions and finding out whom they're following. You could be following Lyshenko. Here's an example. As an undergraduate... 
I agreed to help with, um, uh, my university had a, they do every year, have a sexual awareness, uh, sexual assault awareness campaign. And, uh, and I was uh, in charge of this one year, and, um, and I was trying to get some stuff together for a special edition of the campus newspaper, and one of my biology professors agreed to do an interview. Uh, and I said, great. So I, I grabbed him and said, hey, can you give me a quote about uh, just scientifically the evils of, of rape, of sexual assault? And he said this. How's this for a, a great pompous professor statement? He said, and I wrote, this, faithfully appeared in the paper, rape is an evil that tears the evolutionary fabric built by homo sapiens society. All right? It, which is nicely said. Now, since he was an acquaintance of mine, privately, not in print, I challenged him. I thanked him for the interview, and then I asked him this, because I was going to share with him something that I had just recently learned. Um, I said, do you think that we humans evolved from apes? And this professor said, of course. Of course I think that. We evolved from apes. I said, well, then how do you explain this? In ape cultures, rape is a common part of life. It happens all the time, and it doesn't seem to have hurt their evolution any at all. I wish you could have seen his face. And he just sat there dumbfounded, and I said to him, you know, you might want to look at the Bible if you want to find a real reason against sexual assault. Macroevolution, what you just said, actually promotes rape. Close quote. Learn. Think critically, respectfully. Challenge everybody else's interpretation of Scripture and of science. And remember the whole truth of Psalm 19. It's one truth. God reveals reality both in nature and in Scripture. Science and Christianity are not at odds with each other. In the model of everything, Ralph Brown puts it really, really well. Uh, Ralph says this, The two disciplines of religion and science integrate and support one another, each at times supplying knowledge not available in the other. The two disciplines are interdependent. As one relies on knowledge gained from the other, encouraging further progression and discovery. Close quote. Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters here and all around the world that we will, that we will stand up to lies and we will winsomely and strongly put forth the truth that, that all the world is yours and that we have the incredible privilege of learning from it in Scripture, and in nature. In Jesus' name, amen. We get to do something really special right now. Uh, I was thinking about this this week. This, this is actually something you only get to go through a few times in your lifetime. We get to install new elders. Uh, I would like Thomas Campbell and Jerome Lackey to come up, and if you guys will stand over here in that spotlight, and the elders, if you elders will stand over here. While the elders are coming... Um, let, me, uh, let me walk you through what you do when you try to install new elders. Uh, there is a process, a, a scriptural process that you go through. Paul, we're going to have you stand right up here on the front edge uh, if, you'll, if you'll do that. Thank you very much. Let, let me walk you through what happens. 1 Timothy chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, Titus chapter 1 uh, lays out these, these character qualities of fitness. And so you've got to examine and make sure that these people are are moving toward and are in the realm of those character qualities. You have to prayerfully examine their past ministry, their ownership, whatever church you're ever at. Elders, if they're not on board with the mission and values of that church, they shouldn't be put as elders. First Timothy 3.10 says they must first be tested 
there's nothing against them, then let them serve. So they, we have examined, these elders have examined these guys at length. Um, many, 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 many hours of interview and thought and prayer and discussion. Um, the scripture tells us we have to get input from outside. So we've interviewed uh, old bosses and coworkers and children and spouses and trying to find out what they're like. And then you remember a few weeks ago, we asked for input from the church. And thank you, we got dozens and dozens and dozens of, uh, of comments and the vast majority were so encouraging, very, very kind. We passed a few of them on to those guys. They were just very edifying. There always are, this has been true with everyone we've put on this board, there are always some that say, well, this might be a problem, not so much negative, but just, I think you need to look out for this. What about that? I'm not sure about this. And we took those very seriously. All of those were researched and we didn't find anything disqualifying at all. In fact, quite the opposite. So Paul Hahn is the chairman of our board. If you would step up here and he has some questions for these guys. Are you in complete agreement with the doctrinal statement of Frisco Bible Church? Have you been examined by the elders of Frisco Bible Church regarding scriptural understanding, ministerial grasp, and personal wisdom? <clears throat> Are you prepared, by the grace of God, to accept the mantle of elder to duly minister as an overseer of the church? Do you commit to carry that mantle with humility as a fellow priest among an entire priesthood of believers? Amen. Now I have some questions for you guys on the elder board. And by the way, uh, greetings to our elder emeritus uh, who couldn't be here, Skylar Stuckey, uh, out of town for a funeral. Bob Richardson, we miss you too, uh, serving this weekend teaching. And, uh, and Josh Eels on a business trip. We love you guys and um, they'll answer for you. Uh, gentlemen, have you examined these candidates regarding their fitness to serve? If so, say we have. We have. Have you examined these candidates regarding their fit within the unity of the elders of Frisco Bible Church? If so, say we have. We have. Are you prepared to place your names beside theirs as ones commissioned to shepherd the flock? If so, say we are. We are. Very good. Paul? My fellow elders, <clears throat> I charge you to be courageous in this world, a defender of the faith, always ready to give a reason for the hope within, knowing that eternal rewards have temporal costs. Be courageous with your <clears throat> fellow elders. Never hold back just because your view differs. Your perspective may have eluded the rest of us. Speak out in humility, not to have things go your way, but that the board might have the full counsel of God. <clears throat> Be wise in the word and in the world. In the word, study to show yourself approved unto God, that you need not be ashamed and be doers and not hearers only. In the world, be vigilant that you may stand against the wiles of the devil. 
and guide God's flocks likewise. Love God's children as you love your own. Joy in their accomplishments. Stand beside them in their trials and lovingly correct them when they stray from the truth. In all things, follow hard after God toward the goal that his name is exalted in all the earth. Wow. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jerome, why don't you come up here? Thomas, on this side of him, if you would, and step up here toward the front. And elders, if you'll get behind them, and then if your families would come up and just stand with us, please. Renee, come on up. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, we're going to pray for them now. We're going to lay hands on and pray. That was beautiful, Paul. That was stirring. We're going we're gonna to get that. Um, I asked him earlier if he had it electronically. We're going to send that out to you. That, that was a stirring charge. And by the way, a, a brilliant American educator from the last century, Mortimer Adler, said, the best education for the best is the best education for all. I think the best charge for the elders is the best charge for us all. Uh, I think we all could live by those words. That was very well said. Um, Brian is going to pray for Jerome, and then Paul will uh, pray in our commissioning for Thomas. The elders, let's lay hands on these guys, and let's pray. All right, Father, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for Jerome, and thank you for what you've done in his life to bring him here, and what you're going to continue to do through him. Father, I thank you for his faithfulness, for his friendship, and for how he has led um, his family very, very well. Father, I thank you for his life and ask that you um, continue to use him. Pray that you, he um, continues to study your word and rightly divide and rightly divide it. And we thank you for him and, um, and his wisdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray the mantle of authority granted by your Holy Spirit may rest upon Thomas' shoulders. And I ask that he may wield its power with boldness and humility, not for his gain or glory, but for yours. I ask that he might be a vessel of your infinite love towards your children, that he would rightly divide your word of truth, and with the sword of your spirit, he would exhort, encourage, and edify them. May his heart's desire be the furtherance of your kingdom, I ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, would you give a hand to these two guys and their families?